0: Charlie's message really was a a capstone and an important piece in our our series through 1 Corinthians because Paul makes a transition at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We we go in a different direction. And so the placement of Charlie's sermon, which was uh, essentially highlighting the fact that what had gone so wrong in Corinth is what can go so wrong in so many different churches, and, and Paul is so passionate that this doesn't go wrong, and that is that we don't lose the supremacy of Jesus Christ as, as Lord over all, Lord over his church, and Lord over our lives. When that, when that slips from the center, when Jesus is no longer the center of it all, then all kinds of bad things begin to emerge, including divisions in a church, including rampant sexual immorality, including lawsuits among believers. In a sense, uh, you lose sight of Christ and you've lost the center. The center won't hold. And so Paul has certainly been uh, instructing the Corinthians with regard to this, the, 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 the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ and, and what the cross represents in terms of our lives and our interactions with one another, the wisdom of God that has saved us and still continues to work its power through us. So in chapter seven, Paul takes a turn. He's now going to begin to answer questions that they have asked him in letters that they have written to him. And it's interesting because if you remember, our last section in chapter six in particular dealt mostly with sexual immorality uh, within the church and how, how wrong it was to, to, to live out this kind of dualistic uh, philosophy that said that, that really the, the soul is the spark and, and what is meaningful, the body, it, it doesn't matter at all, our, our urges and our appetites don't matter, what you do with your body doesn't matter at all, and so therefore uh, men in the church were going to temple prostitutes and satisfying sexual lusts. Uh, in, in really uh, wrong ways. And so Paul had to remind them once again of who they are, who they are in Christ. Do, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body because you have been bought with a price, which is that lordship language. Again, who do you belong to? That's the fundamental question. Who do you belong to? And if we belong to Jesus Christ, then that's gonna make all the difference in our lives. So now, after spending a good amount of time addressing sexual immorality within the church, Paul's first question that he'll deal with is actually kind of a continuation. It's about sex and marriage. So let's look at this together. We're going to study the first half of chapter 7 uh, together this week. And this is God's word. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we wade into these matters, uh, that, that touch on your heart for us in this uh, crucial area of, of marriage and how we're to understand your heart for marriage. Lord, we just pray that that's what you would do today through your word, that you would encourage us, that you would instruct us, that you would uh, give us hope. Uh, in believing that your, your plans and your ways uh, are not only good, but you direct your power uh, toward us who believe. Lord, I pray for, I pray for marriages here today, Lord, that, you would, that you would infuse hope and life into the marriages here. I pray for, for those who are single today, that you would infuse faith into our hearts for your sovereignty and goodness and your plan. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are definitely talking about marriage here, right? So concerning the matters that you wrote, we're talking about marriage and, and even divorce and remarriage and what are some of the stipulations. And this doesn't say everything, but Paul does say a lot here. And it's, it reads like Paul is trying to nail down a couple of things that have gone sideways. I wonder if you could picture uh, a group in the church that are kind of overthinking it. Maybe they would say, "Yeah, we we get you on the the sexual immorality uh, that that it's wrong." As a matter of fact, culturally speaking, uh, the reason the reason that it sprung up and and became so kind of twisted was that there was a sense that that sexual relations within the marriage were never meant for pleasure; they were just meant for children, and so there was kind of a a forensic physical thing that would happen with your wife, but then all other sexual pleasure would be explored outside of the marriage. And that's what went so wrong and that's what they were indeed practicing here. And so you maybe have this group that's overthinking it and saying, well, well if, if sex and sexual pleasure is, is bad and equates to sexual immorality, then, then what they had heard is it's not good to have sex with a woman whatsoever. So the question that they present to the apostles is: Is that true? Is it true that even among Christian marriages, that we should refrain from this thing called sex? And then beyond that, uh, should we even stay married, or should we get divorced? Or if you become a Christian when you are married and your spouse does not become a christian should you divorce in other words what's the deal with marriage and christianity and the church this is what they're asking and this is what paul wants to address and the the tack that he takes is is he's answering some of these questions but first he needs to kind of de-escalate this over-spiritualizing of marriage the super-spiritualizing that's behind their questions In other words, what they're saying is, is there a a spiritual state that we should attain that transcends marriage and sex and sexuality? Is that really what Christianity is all about? And Paul categorically rejects this, and he adjusts them, actually by pointing to the glory and beauty and design of God's plan for marriage and sex. In a sense, if the question that Paul is getting is, is should we just check out now that we're Christians and if, if sex leads to, to really bad things, then, then is it true that it's good for a, a man not to have sex with a woman? And Paul says categorically, no, absolutely not. Thank God, right? Thank God Paul goes in the complete opposite direction And he actually says something like this. He he wants to encourage them that Christian couples should regularly practice and enjoy sex with each other in mutual giving and serving for the benefit of their marriage as an outlet for God-given sexual desires and for the procreation of children. This is the direction that Paul goes. He says, let's be clear about this. Christian couples should regularly Practice and enjoy sex with each other in mutual giving and serving for the benefit of their marriage as an outlet for God given sexual desires and for the procreation of children. It's not right for a man not to have sex with a woman in some over spiritualized, super spiritual state because it's within. The design of God is within the intimacy and protection and safety and exclusivity of the covenant of marriage that God has designed all sexual desires to be expressed and to be fulfilled. You see, sexual desire is a gift from God. God invented sex all the way back to the garden. It is not good for a man to be alone, so he made a woman for her. And, and Adam responded with, with joy and a poem and a song, and the two became one. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is all God's idea. Sex is a gift from God. So it's not to be prohibited. It's not to be avoided. It's supposed to be directed into that place that God has designed it to exist in the first place within the intimacy and protection and safety and exclusivity of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. You see, it's, it's sin that has twisted sex. It is sin that has twisted sexual desires. Sin takes sexual desires and and tells us that they can only be fulfilled anywhere and everywhere but in the place that God has designed for it to be fulfilled. Isn't that true? Just think about our culture today. Think about any, any average TV show, any average movie. Think about the internet. Think about bingeable shows. Think about celebrity culture. Think about social media. Think about porn sites. Where does our world say that sex is best? And where does our world encourage sex to be expressed? Where is sex the most exciting? What is being sold to us? And I, and I know you know, When all along, the most beautiful, the most pure, the most honorable, the most practiced and pleasurable, the most vulnerable and reassuring, the most shining example of healthy and flourishing and deeply satisfying sex is in the monogamous sex life of a husband and wife who have had each other for a lifetime. That's God's design. And yet that is laughable to our world and archaic, and immediately derided and dismissed. Think about it. The most beautiful, the most pure, the most honorable, the most practiced, and pleasurable, and vulnerable, and yet reassuring, the most shining example of healthy and flourishing and deeply satisfying sex is in the monogamous sex life of a husband and wife who have had each other alone for a lifetime. This is, this is God's design. This is what Paul is reaffirming. And yet, of course, you know, and I know that monogamy is mocked in our culture. It's the free sexual activity and sexual promiscuity and sexual exploration and sexual conquest and sexual expression. These are what are celebrated and sold to us as the way. This is where life And true joy and true thrill is meant to be found. The availability of sex and immorality and adultery, either of the body or of the heart, it abounds. And it's sold to us in our world as the good life, as as normal, as not wrong, as healthy, as the way to go. And yet, what is God's plan for our good and for our true joy? Well, certainly not to ditch sex, not at all. Look again, verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, here's the answer. Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Look, and if you want to go through that with like a fine-tooth comb and and bring in your lawyer to kind of dissect what your rights are and what her rights are and to kind of figure that out, you're completely missing the point. You're completely missing what Paul is saying. He's drawing attention to the glorious and world-altering beauty and power of Christian marriage and sex here. All while affirming at least a few things, at least four things. The first thing that he affirms, as I see it, is that God designed married sex to be the only right outlet for our human God-given sexual desires. There's, There's some categorical statements in here that stand alone in the Bible, that are reinforced in other places in the Bible. But there's two things in view with regard to sex in the Bible, two categories, and they're binary. It's, it's black or white. It's one or the other, right? It's either sex as expressed by God's design, any activity between a man and a woman within the covenant of marriage, that's one thing, or everything else, everything else and everything else is called sexual immorality. It's called sin. It's called wrong, right? So when, when Paul says, is it good for a man not to have sex with a woman? He's like, no, because of sexual immorality, the remedy is God's design. A man should have his wife and a wife should have her husband. And it means what you think to have, and to hold from this day forward. God's design is for married sex to be the only righteous outlet for our human God-given sexual desire. There's this, this kind of if then, if every other expression every other expression of or acting out of sexual desire outside of marriage is sexual immorality, which it is, then the only appropriate avenue for sexual expression is within marriage. So if you want to have sex, get married and have sex. Now this certainly raises other questions about sexual desires that grow in us prior to the feasibility of marriage and what to do in that case. It, it, it brings up questions about singleness, and, and we're going to get to some of those things in this chapter as Paul progresses in terms of, of talking about singleness and, and how to think about that. But God designed married sex to be only to be the only righteous outlet for our human God-given sexual desires. The second thing that he affirms is that sexual desire must only be satisfied between a man and a woman in the marriage bed. Again, there, there there are categorical statements in here. Again, the only proper remedy to fighting all sexual immorality is that a man should have his wife and a wife should have her husband. So if you just take that statement, does God mean what he says? Is God clear? Is God not ambiguous? If you take the, the Bible at face value, then there are no other options here, nor in the rest of the Bible. The righteous expression of God-given sexualities does not expand culturally over the centuries to include different versions of gender in that bed or different number of people or partners in that bed. A husband should have his wife and a wife should have her husband, period. This is where sex happens according to God's design within the covenant of marriage. And I know that this raises many questions, many good questions, about what to do with same-sex attraction, what to do with a culture that, that tells us that, that we're born this way and we're wired differently. How are we supposed to respond to God and obey God? And there, there are answers to those questions. Not easy answers, mostly hard answers, but there are answers with the fierce love and righteousness and reward of Jesus at the center. But here we notice the principle that sexual desire must only be explored and satisfied in the marriage bed of a man and a woman. We get another thing here that he affirms. He talks about this, or at least you, you kind of see it seep through, He's, the idea that when sex decreases, temptation increases. Did you kind of get that? There's this, there's this mutuality that exists within Christian marriage and Christian sect, this, this, this idea of not depriving one another. This this idea that when sex decreases, the possibility of temptation increases. And I think that this gets twisted often because women, I think, in particular are made to feel that if they don't keep their husband happy in bed, he might wander. And I categorically reject that as a fear mechanism that puts undue pressure on wives and lets husbands completely off the hook as if there's any excuse to break your covenant vows with the wife that God has given you. I don't think that's what's going on here. Paul is saying to both, to both men and women, the more that you are both mutually satisfied and giving and serving of one another and not depriving one another, the more you are both satisfied at home, certainly the less temptation you will face. This is a general principle that is meant to encourage regular satisfying sex between husbands and wives as God intended. Not just for procreation, not super spiritualizing sex and taking it outside of the realm of the pleasure that God intended it to be. And the 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 strength building that it is for a marriage. You say, look, don't don't deprive each other. I mean, maybe if you're gonna if you're fasting, if you're giving up other physical thing, we give up food in a, in a pursuit of of God and more spiritual things, or you can give up. You can fast social media, I suppose, and every time you, you're tempted to get on social media, you think to, to pray, it's for a spiritual reason. Sure, you can you can fast sexual intimacy as long as it points you to Christ, but only for a time. And make sure you come back together so that Satan doesn't tempt you. You see, Paul's Paul's addressing in his answer to this question a lot of things. And he's painting a, a really beautiful picture for what Christian marriage is and looks like. And, and he's, he's not making this up. It's, certainly, he's drawing from the, the rich scriptures in the Old Testament, an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Songs, which is about married sex and love and, and intimacy and desire and pleasure. Certainly, uh, he, maybe Paul's thinking of, of something like Proverbs 5. He's he's encouraging them to to regularly give to one another because it says in Proverbs 5, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and brace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Look, be satisfied with one another. Even if you take a break, come back together. That should be an exception. Regular should be the norm. Joyfully serving and giving to one another. And then the fourth thing that I think Paul affirms here is that marriage God's way is always drenched in selfless giving and serving. I think that that's what shines through here in his instruction. Again, remember, he's answering the question. Um, You know, they got together and they're like, okay, let's ask the apostle Paul some questions. He'll get back to us on these for sure. And that guy has just got to put this question out there, right? Because he's over-spiritualizing something, or he's created an over-spiritual category. So he wants to ask Paul, hey, it's it, we shouldn't have sex at all, right? Like, that's the question. And so Paul smashes that back so hard, right? <laughs> he's just like... But he does so in by drawing attention to these, these, these wonderful and rich and historic and biblical and, and creation-oriented realities that ultimately land in this, this idea that, that marriage, God's way, is always drenched in selflessness, self-giving, and self- Serving The husband should gladly and freely give to his wife and serve his wife and her desires for him. And the wife should gladly and freely give to her husband and serve her husband and his desires for her. Do you see how both husbands and wives are honored in their desires? Do you see how pro-woman Jesus is? And how pro-woman the Bible is. Because in every culture, women are demeaned historically. And marginalized. And used. And abused. Except within Christian marriage. Where a husband is required by God to honor and serve and dignify and value the image bearer that he's married to. There's a selflessness. There's a self-giving. Christian marriage has, has been the possible and hopeful shining exception of the degradation of women, the objectification of women, the abuse of women because of the dignity and value and honor God gives to women as his image bearer. Women who are meant to be loved and cherished and served by husbands, who consider the interests of their wives as more important than their own. This is Paul's instruction in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands and wives, your body is not your own. You are one flesh, you belong to each other. Therefore, the games of power and manipulation are wrong. Unrighteous withholding is wrong. Using sex for power or concession to get what you want is wrong. There is nothing of Christ in that. Using deprivation as a weapon or a tool to manipulate your spouse, it's wrong. In other words, God's design, marriage, God's way has always been to to bring two completely different individuals who are willing to subordinate the me to the us. That's what marriage is. That's what it's been historically, and that's what it's been spiritually. Is that you subordinate the me to the greater good of us. It's a relationship that by definition is a relationship of sacrifice because two are walking together as one. And isn't this really the problem with marriage in our culture anymore because the whole concept of marriage has essentially changed. It used to be that two completely different different people would subordinate the me to the us that that what that which was best for us would be more important than that which is best for me that which is best for society through strong families and, and strong family units is what's better than what might be best for me and certainly what's best for our children and our family rises above in priority to what's best and important for me, but all that's gone out the window. And marriage has become me. One New York Times writer called this generation's idea of marriage the me marriage. It's no longer us. Look, marriage is is always about learning to love us more than just me and fighting for the us and protecting the us, mostly by sacrificing the me that shows up every day. Marriage is a relationship of mutual giving and serving and loving and growing for the ultimate purpose of personifying a picture so much bigger than ourselves, the picture of Christ and his church. But sadly, marriage in our culture has become about me. Think about how you would even get married anymore. At least as it seems to play out in our culture, it seems like the the me world that we live in requires at least two things. The me man or the me woman will only get married if number one, an unrealistic standard of attractiveness is met. We're talking almost physical perfection. The beauty culture that we live in gives the impression to every guy that unless she's perfect, perfect supermodel, then she might not do. Or to girls, unless he's perfect, you might not stay attracted. But there's this, there's this he or she's gotta be hot enough quotient anymore, before there's even a consideration. And then, even if you can find that, there's secondly this unrealistic demand of perfect compatibility. So it's not just that that he's, or she's smoking hot, or whatever, but he gets me, or she gets me. And you know what that means, that, that essentially means that he, he gets you, but it means that he accepts you and will never try to change you. In other words, you will only marry someone who accepts you for who you are and will never try to change you. And at this point, we're talking about unicorns here, aren't we? <laughs> like, this person doesn't exist this person doesn't exist. And yet that's become the standard for even considering marriage. So in the meantime, you can just practice in either direction, whether it's based on looks or based on personality and compatibility, or you can cohabit together and practice and you can try to figure out when this is nothing of God's design for marriage which is two really normal, ordinary people. Certainly finding a spark of attraction, that's important. Finding a spark of compatibility, that's important. Don't don't dismiss that completely. But two really, really normal people who decide to make a decision to commit to one another through the thick and thin of life, through sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part, through all the different changing seasons of life. Regardless of what we look like now, we know that in 10 years from now, it won't look like that whatsoever. 20 years from now, wow. 30 years from now, the ship has sailed. (laughs) Right? And yet all along, we looked into each other's eyes and a pastor standing there leading us through lifelong promises that we were gonna make to each other that weren't so steeped in hotness and perfect compatibility, but that were steeped in in love as a commitment and a decision to promise our lives to one another no matter what came and to promise exclusivity to one another and to promise safety and vulnerability to one another. And in this picture that the world gives of what relationships are supposed to look like, hot and exciting, and I mean the reality shows, are they not just getting worse and worse? Young men going to an island with their friends' mothers to see what happens next? And this is life and joy and normal and good? When all along sitting in this room our husbands and wives who all that they have done is faithfully loved each other through thick and thin, ups and downs, sinning against each other, repenting to each other, coming back together, making love to each other, enjoying one another, laughing together, embarrassed, getting better at it for year after year after year after decade after decade. And that honors God. That's God's design. That's God's design as the fight against sexual immorality and temptation that abounds all around us. Look, this is is how Paul is, he's so normal. He's so allergic to the super spiritual. So is Jesus. Gotta love that. Come on, guys, don't have sex with one another. What are you talking about? What Paul is saying is get married. Have lots of sex. And stay married, by the way. Don't get divorced. I want to hit that final section. There's there's places in there where where we find scriptures exit doors. 1 Corinthians You'll find two exit doors in the front, two on the sides, and two in the back, right? Because they're there. Because of God's kindness to men and women, you're not bound in a marriage where someone's been unfaithful to you and has broken that physical covenant bond. You're not bound if an unbelieving spouse rejects you and abandons you. You're not bound. You can, you can get remarried. You're not bound if you're in an abusive situation and you need out. God is, is kind. But of course, divorce is the first option when any trouble comes in marriages. And according to the Bible, it should be the last option and you should find somebody you trust or a pastor who could help you to navigate the, the saddest parts of life, as many of you know when because of sin, it it doesn't work out. And yet we know that marriage is an ultimate because even broken marriages point us to the reality of a savior who will never leave us or forsake us, never cheat on us, never throw us away. Marriage is a picture of the gospel and it's meant to show a world around us what's true and what's good and what's right for a lifetime. This is what Paul is saying to this church. Marriage is a gift from God. And by the way, singleness is as well. We're gonna find this out more. He, he said in there, did you see, I, I wish that, that you were like I am. And he's not saying that he wishes everybody were single in the sense that it's wrong to be married and you should be single. He's saying it like I would say. I play piano, and I really love to sit down at the piano and and play different things, and and go into a different place, and and hear. I, I wish everybody could play piano like I could. It's that kind of a, a wish. Like like you don't have, you have no idea when when a single person is so satisfied in their relationship with Christ that that marriage isn't isn't ultimately necessary or ultimate in their life. Then that's a sweet spot. That's a gift from God. Paul said. So he's going to expound on that a little bit next week. But for today, I hope that you've seen at least three things. I hope that you can see the glory and the power and the beauty of marriage and sex as God intends and desires for us to walk in. Look, there is nothing on earth like a Christ-centered, monogamous, sexually active, and sexually faithful marriage. There's nothing on earth like this. It's growing more and more extinct. But for each one of you who are pressing into this, because of the picture of the gospel, because of the picture of Christ's faithfulness to us, because of the commitment of love to one another, that's not just an emotion, but is as much a decision in the day-to-day life. If you're leaning into this, you are pleasing God. So keep at it. Be married, have lots of sex, don't get divorced. Rinse and repeat, and you're right in the middle of God's will. You're right in the middle of God's will. And if you're not married and you desire to be married and you're trusting God and you're, you're waiting, especially in our culture of license, I can't tell you, as married men and women in our church, we highly respect every young adult, or teen who is pure in our country today. We respect you for your commitment to Jesus Christ and the fight that you're in. And all of us have been in it. Teenagers, this is the way. This is God's way. Everything that you know about sex is meant to be focused exclusively into a marriage between you and a woman, you and a man one day. And until then, you fight and you resist and you say no to ungodliness and you say no to sexual temptation. You flee. And if you are, I just can't tell you how much I respect you for considering the call to Christ as more important than caving to the world. You are worthy of our honor. And then lastly, maybe your marriage is hurting today. It's it's tough to to navigate through certainly the ideals that exist for us in Scripture. Maybe maybe you feel like you're a number of variations from the mean that exist here. And you would say that, that there have been things in your marriage that have been broken for quite some time. I just would encourage you to get help. God is a God who redeems. God God fixes broken things. The enemy attacks the things that are most precious to God. And this is one of them, right? So it's no wonder that he might want to attack you over the long haul. I would encourage you to place Jesus at the center again and his healing power and what he might be able to do. To switch you back from a me married guy or a me married woman back to the hope and the possibility of us again and how God might heal you. We have pastors here that would love to meet with you, to talk with you, certainly counselors all around our area, but don't give up. God's design for marriage is good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Lord, in light of all of this, we look to you as our hope Lord, I know that we all know that, that the state of marriage is just an absolute dumpster fire in our culture, in our world, and sadly, Lord, even around us and in our own lives. Like the sin that so easily entangles us, the, the patterns of sin because of the, the lingering effects of sin, the effect of time the temptations toward bitterness, the temptation toward unforgiveness, these are the things that we we wrestle with and yet we believe that your desires and your designs are so beautiful. Lord, you wouldn't call us to something that you don't give us power to walk in. So I just pray for all of us today that, that you would just breathe hope into our hearts. Of normal people, normal-looking people, not trying to, to mimic the ideals of our world, but trying to be faithful to you and your word, to the gift of a husband or a wife that you've given to us. Lord, would you stir in us a desire for, for your glory in our marriages, our families? Lord, lead us to help where we need it. This word today to strengthen our resolve to live for you. We look to you as our hope. You love us. You forgive us. You've died for us and risen from the grave for us. So Jesus, be at the center of our marriages. We pray in Jesus' name.